ECO Report is a weekly public affairs program providing independent media coverage of environmental and ecological studies with a focus on local, state, and regional people, issues, and events in order to foster open discussion of human relationships with nature and the earth and to encourage you to take personal responsibility for living sustainably in the world. EcoReport is produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana and financially supported by listeners like you. Good morning and welcome to EcoReport. For WFHB, I'm Juliana Daly. And I'm David Lyman. After a wildlife photographer snapped a picture of an osprey nesting on Patoka Lake, the Indiana Department of Natural Resources is considering removing the bird from the state endangered species list. Biologists brought 96 ospreys to Indiana between 2003 and 2006 as part of a restoration program. The young birds were released at wildlife areas across the state, where biologists hoped they would flourish. Allison Marie Gillett, a non-game bird biologist with the DNR, says monitoring the osprey population is important as it can serve as an indicator of how clean water systems are. It's really important that we have ospreys nesting because it's a representative of how healthy our water systems are. So our lakes, our river systems, things like that, um, this is where ospreys nest. Um, And when their habitat is healthy, um, they also, as a population, are healthy. So it's a really great indicator of how well our wetland ecosystems are doing. The osprey caught on camera wore a leg band with an identification number. Biologists used the number to confirm that the bird was part of the restoration program. Another bird, a juvenile osprey, was also pictured in Forsyth's image, indicating the bird has successfully reproduced and raised offspring. It went very well, surprisingly. Um, So overall, I think they've done pretty well. We were expecting them to do okay as a species because they're a large raptor. Um, Usually raptors, they take a little bit of time to bounce back because they're a long-lived species, and as a result, um, it takes them some time to sexually mature and then find mates and things like that. So um, considering that they were released in 2003 and um, until 2006 and that they were able to now be eligible for delisting after 10 years, that's great for a long-lived large raptor. Because the osprey population has grown successfully, Gillette said the DNR is considering moving them from the state endangered species list to special concern status. The birds will still be constantly surveyed, but the protection measures are looser than those for state endangered species. It's another good conservation story. I think that we have to continue supporting efforts like that so that we can continue to have good conservation stories to tell um, our kids and next generations to come. Um, It kind of is another way to just remember that, yeah, humans can do really good things, and we should celebrate that, and we should try harder for the species that remain on the list. 
Indiana biologists have documented 64 osprey pairs and 11 new nests since 2016. In 2004, the Environmental Protection Agency named Evansville, Indiana's city center, a Superfund site because of lead contamination, among the worst in the country. The contaminated area covers about four and a half square miles surrounding the downtown area. At this point, EPA estimates that it's removed lead from about half the city's contaminated residential properties. The cleanup started 10 years ago, and about 2,000 properties remain to be cleaned up. Much of the contaminated area is residential. A hundred years ago, that area held manufacturers which polluted the area with arsenic and other toxic substances, as well as lead. One of the factories made lead shot pellets on the property that a hospital sits on today. Lead was found in the soil of Evansville's Jacobsville neighborhood in the year 2000, but it soon became obvious that the contamination was severe and existed far beyond the neighborhood. According to the EPA, windborne particulates from factories spread the contamination throughout the community. On July 26, the Senate Environmental and Public Works Committee voted to advance a bill that would strip protection for thousands of endangered gray wolves in the Great Lakes region and Wyoming. The legislation is deceptively named the HELP Wildlife Act, with H-E-L-P, or HELP, standing for Hunting Heritage and Economic Legacy Preservation for Wildlife. The bill weakens the Endangered Species Act by blocking any further judicial review of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service's 2011 decision to end federal protection for wolves. Since being driven to near extinction by hunters and trappers in the early 20th century, gray wolves still occupy only 15% of their historical range in the continuous U.S. From 2011, when their production was removed, to 2014, when a federal court restored that protection, over 1,500 animals were killed. Wolves are threatened by farmers and others who fear predation, but they are also affected by the international fur trade. A lawsuit filed on July 13th by the Center for Biological Diversity challenges the massive U.S. export of wild animal skins for the international fur trade. The U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service sponsors a program allowing the export of around 80,000 bobcats, river otters, wolves, lynx, and brown bears killed each year. In recent years, the international fur market has boomed, driven largely by demand in China, Russia, and Europe, and has resulted in the increased killing and export of fur-bearing animals from the U.S. For example, prices for bobcat pelts rose from around $85 in 2000 to almost $590 13 years later. The number of bobcat pelts exported from the U.S. roughly quadrupled during that period, with a high of 65,000 skins exported commercially in 2013. Countless foxes, beavers, and other species also die in traps set for fur-bearing animals. In the process of fighting the government and corporations over herbicide spraying in her rural Oregon community, Carol Van Stroom acquired over 200,000 pages of documents obtained through public interest lawsuits and open records requests and stored them in her barn. 
Now, environmental activists have collected the documents called the Poison Papers and digitized them to make them available to the public and researchers. According to Peter Van Stackelberg, a journalist who helped place the Poison Papers online along with the Center for Media and Democracy and the Bioscience Resource Project, the documents, quote, lay out a 40-year history of deceit and collusion involving the chemical industry and the regulatory agencies that were supposed to be protecting human health and the environment, unquote. The poison papers give the lie to the notion that so-called independent chemical testing is truly independent and demonstrate a systemic failure to protect the public from chemical dangers. Two women, Ruby Montoya and Jessica, Jessica Reznicek, recently committed arson and other forms of sabotage against the Dakota Access Pipeline. On July 24th, they held a press conference and read a statement taking responsibility for their actions while standing in front of the Iowa Utility Board. Then they used a crowbar and a hammer to begin pulling off the letters of the Utility Board sign and were arrested. Released from jail the next day, the two were charged with fourth-degree criminal mischief. The women's actions were well-considered facts of civil disobedience and attempt to stop the pipeline. Montoya said in reference to their actions, quote, Making something anonymous in these particular circumstances, I feel, distances and eliminates and fragments further. Instead of trying to humanize these things as viable and peaceful options for the resistance, Reznicek added that taking responsibility for their actions was the right thing to do and that she was following her spirit. On July 26th, Charmaine Whiteface, an Oglala Sioux biologist and environmentalist from Rapid City, South Dakota, was named a Giraffe Hero by the Giraffe Heroes Project, a nonprofit organization that encourages people to, quote, stick their necks out for the common good, unquote. Whiteface received the award for her fight against uranium mining in the Black Hills and corruption with tribal governments. In 2003, Whiteface founded the Environmental and Social Justice Organization, Defenders of the Black Hills. In 2007, the organization won the Nuclear Free Future Award, called the Nobel Prize for Environmentalists. The organization focuses on the extensive uranium-related problems caused by mining on native lands. Whiteface says there are 272 abandoned uranium mines in South Dakota and over 2,000 in Wyoming. Because they are open mines, wind scatters radioactive particles. Native Americans in the Northern Plains have the highest cancer rates in the country. The UK has followed France in banning the sale of new gasoline and diesel cars by 2040 as part of its plan to tackle chronic air pollution in cities. The government has been coming under intense pressure to act, with an estimated 40,000 people dying prematurely a year from air pollution. A government spokesman told the press that poor air quality is the biggest environmental risk to public health in the UK. But critics have said the ban is already too little, too late, with many highly critical of the proposals. Jenny Randerson, a Liberal Democrat, said, quote, air pollution is poisoning our children and leading to causing avoidable deaths across the country. Instead of properly fighting this silent killer, the government has flip-flopped, offering tax breaks for cars that they are now banning." Quote. 
Ariba Hamid, the clean air campaigner at Greenpeace, added, quote, The High Court was clear that the government must bring down toxic air pollution in the U.K. in the shortest possible time. This plan is still miles away from that, end quote. In Indiana, there, were, there is no widespread testing of vehicle emissions. Such testing is required only in counties near Lake Michigan, Clark, Floyd, Lake, or Port County. And that's the news for this week. I'm David Lyman. And I'm Juliana Daly. We love to hear from our listeners. Contact us about stories we've aired, or if you have ideas for future stories, please send emails to earth at wfhb.org. In today's Eco Report feature, correspondent Norm Holy interviews Sherry Mitchell Brooker, who founded the Friends of Lake Monroe Citizen Group last year. This is Norm Holy for WFHB, and today I'm speaking with Sherry Mitchell Brooker, and uh, she is the head of the Friends of Lake Monroe. Um, could you tell us what the purpose of the uh, organization is? Well, Friends of Lake Monroe is a citizens group dedicated to finding solutions to improve the water Lake Monroe and enhancing its use as a drinking water, recreational, and ecological resource for all who use it. Um, Our mission is to protect and enhance the lake and its watershed through science, advocacy, and public involvement. Um, We want to work collaboratively with citizens and government and business to improve and support lake water quality. Now, what are the major issues that you've identified for Lake Monroe? Well, there are a lot of threats to Lake Monroe. The biggest concerns would be the delivery of phosphorus into the lake and sediments. And those two things, sediments and phosphorus, uh, lead to other problems such as eutrophication, which is when there gets to be a buildup of so much of aquatic life and algaes that the oxygen levels get really low plants die off, fish die off, and the lake begins to fill in. Is anyone doing any um, algae mitigation, spraying, or anything like that? No, no, we're, we're not at that point. Um, what we're, we're looking for is a reduction in the phosphorus load and reduction in, in uh, sediment uh, loading to the lake as, as means of controlling algae. We hope that we don't get to a point where we have to spray chemicals on the lake to control algae. Uh-huh. Now, what about mercury levels in in the water? Yeah, the USGS did a study of four different lakes in Indiana. Um, Monroe was one, Patoka was one, uh, and Brookville, I can't remember the fourth, but anyway, those two, Monroe and Patoka, had high levels of mercury in the sediments and in the fish. The highest concentrations are in the deeper waters, Also, they did an analysis that looked at um, what type of fish were actually being consumed, and they found that, for the most part, the high concentration in fish, uh, those fish were not the ones that were being consumed. It's still a problem. 
and um, it's an issue all over the Midwest. Is it fair to say that the mercury is coming from burning coal? Yes. Yes, that's the main source is atmospheric de deposition as a result of coal-fired power plants. Now, the upper parts of the lake often are very shallow in part because of sediment deposition, and it, these areas serve as attractive areas for, for birds. Um, is there anything you want to do with those areas? In terms of enhancing habitat for the birds? Yeah. Well, there's quite a lot being done already. I mean, the um, North Fork Wildlife Preserver Refuge has introduced eagles to the lake, and they provide a waterfowl resting area in Stillwater Marsh for birds, especially uh, wading birds. But this is during migration periods also, so it's an important area. What are your concerns in terms of Lake Monroe as a water supply for Bloomington? Well, this is something that's extremely important, as you well know. The amount of uh, organic carbon, we call it total organic carbon in the lake, is related to the production of this toxic disinfectant byproducts in the drinking water. So there have been concerns in recent years about increases in these byproducts. We haven't gotten to the point where it's a health problem at this time, but certainly we've been put on alert that we need to pay attention to this. So what the City of Bloomington Utilities wants to do is reduce, besides all of the great work that they've been doing in their um, treatment process to reduce these dis disinfectant byproducts, we also need to look at the lake as a source of the water and, and try to reduce that total organic carbon. Now, that organic carbon comes from both the runoff from the watershed, from sediment and erosion, so shoreline erosion, and then also from algae and the uh, the organic material that, that is created when algae grows in the lake. So that means also reducing total phosphorus into the watershed. Is there any significant inflow of microparticles such as found in uh, toothpaste and uh, deodorant and other products that people use at home? Um, I, that's a good question. I, I have not heard of anyone who's studied that at this point. Any other issues you'd like to uh, explore? Well, the other issue is the toxic blue-green algae, which has become a problem on Monroe over the uh, past several years. Basically what happens is when you get too much phosphorus in the water, then you get a uh, uncontrolled growth of algae and you get an algal bloom. Some of that algae, particularly the blue-green algae, emits toxins, byproducts that cause liver failure and some of them cause neurological damage. As the water warms up in the summer, these blooms become more of a problem and usually in August or September, we start having warnings on the beaches about the algae levels. And the water, if it's green, if it has algae on the surface, this can be toxic, especially to pets. The dogs uh, might drink the water and then lick their fur and lick all of that algae off of their fur. 
and um, that, that could uh, be lethal to dogs. Uh, also toxic to fish and wildlife and to humans in high enough concentration. There's been lakes in other areas that have had to shut down all of their recreation and the drinking water because of toxic algae levels. So this is something that we have to really keep a close eye on. And again, you know, the key to that is reducing the amount of phosphorus and the amount of uh, sediments coming into the lake. I've been speaking today with Sherry Mitchell-Bruker, who is head of the organization, the Friends of Lake Monroe. Could you uh, tell us where the website is in case uh, people would like to look up additional information? Yeah, if you Google Friends of Lake Monroe and you'll see our website is www.friendsoflakemonroe.org. And there's lots of information. We have um, events that are coming up, and we have monthly meetings. We would love to see uh, more people come. Very informative. Thank you very much. Are you an environmental activist? Or maybe an expert on a particular issue of environmental concern? A concerned citizen interested in learning more about local and national environmental issues? EcoReport is seeking volunteer reporters to contribute short headline news stories as well as feature interviews. We provide all the technical training you'll need. For more information, email us at earth at wfhb.org or call 812-323-1200. And now it's time for In Nature, a segment focusing on the flora and fauna of South Central Indiana. This is In Nature. Ringneck snakes, Diadophis punctatus, are small snakes from 10 to 12 inches long found in the moist woods of this region. They are secretive, nocturnal species that live on lizards, amphibian slugs, and other small creatures. Their top is light brown to black with a bright yellow band around their neck. Their underbelly is also bright yellow. Ringneck snakes are not aggressive. Though they use venom on their prey, they are not known to bite large predators. Their reaction to disturbance is to curl their tail tightly, exposing the yellow coloration on their belly. These snakes capture their prey by striking and then constricting. Once the snake has secured its prey, it uses its back teeth to inject the animal with a venom produced by a gland behind the snake's eyes. Ringneck snakes mate in spring. Males are attracted to pheromones secreted by the female. A male snake rubs his closed mouth along the female's body, then bites her ring and maneuvers himself so that he can insert sperm into her vent. The female then lays three to ten eggs in a moist, aerated soil under rotted logs or stones. Eggs are laid in early summer and hatch in August or September. Large numbers of these snakes hibernate together in a deep hole or under rotted wood. During hot weather, they make holes or burrow under logs. You've been listening to In Nature. And now it's time for our weekly events calendar. The Sycamore Land Trust is offering a Butterflies and Blossoms tour of the Touch the Earth Natural Area on Saturday, August the 5th from 1 to 3 p.m. Enjoy the beauty of butterflies and blossoms as you stroll the broad trails with naturalist and butterfly enthusiast Doug Johnson. 
you will learn how to identify butterflies, plants, and other common insects. RSVP to 812-336-5382, extension 100. Take a creek hike at Spring Mill State Park on Monday, August 7th from 11 a.m. to noon. Meet Kelsey at the Sycamore Shelter ready for an adventure. This hour-long rugged hike upstream will explore the stream that flows from Donaldson Cave. Wear sturdy hiking shoes and bring a hiking stick or pole if you have one. Explore the quieter side of Monroe Lake during this guided Explore Monroe paddling trip on Tuesday, August 8th from 9 a.m. to 11.30 a.m. at the Cutright State Recreation Area at Monroe Lake. During this trip, you will journey through backwaters, wetlands, bays, and slow-moving streams. All participants must have at least two hours of paddling experience. There is a charge to participate, but you may bring your own canoe or kayak or rent one. Sign up at http colon backslash bit dot ly backslash explore Monroe AUG 2017 by August the 4th. For more information, call 812-837-9967. The Heartline Chapter of the Sierra Club is having a Morgan Monroe Low Gap hike on Sunday, August 13th from, from 10.30 a.m. to 2 p.m. This will be a moderately strenuous seven-mile hike that will begin at the Low Gap parking lot and end at Bear Lake. A lunch break will be included. Please RSVP via eventbrite, that's B-R-I-T-E, dot com, or by emailing jesskirkham at gmail.com. The Indiana Forest Alliance and Neil Brown Hospitality will be presenting a forest foraged feast on Sunday, August the 13th from 6 p.m. to 8.30 p.m. at Stella, located at Massachusetts Avenue in Indianapolis. The, di the dinner will be showcasing the wildest edible treasures from Indiana Forest. There is a charge for this event, and proceeds will benefit the IFA. To register, go to the IFA website or call 317-602-3692 or contact Ann at indianaforestalliance.org. That wraps up our show for this week. Eco Report is brought to you in part by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water, solar electricity, and solar hot air systems. MPI Solar designs and installs solar power generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. Found locally at 812-334-4003 and on the web at mpisolarenergy.com. This week's news stories were written by Lindsay Jones, Norm Holy, and Linda Green. The feature was produced by Norm Holy. Rebecca Mueller edited the script. I compiled our events calendar. Our events, our engineer is Sarah Vaughn. Executive producer is Wes Martin. For WFHB, I'm Juliana Daly. And I'm David Lyman. Join us on Thursdays at 11.30 a.m. before Democracy Now!, and on Fridays at 5 p.m. before Kite Line for our weekly radio rundown of ecological news and resistance. 
Until then, EcoReport encourages you to take direct action to defend the Earth. You've been listening to The Eco Report, a volunteer-powered production of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana. Available for download and podcast at news.wfhb.org. Eco Report is your independent, ecologically inspired news source for South Central Indiana, bringing you news that the earth wants you to hear. Send your comments, suggestions, and story ideas directly to the Eco Report staff. The email address is earth at wfhb.org. That's earth at wfhb.org.